Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on with it. Welcome to episode 55 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. A bumper edition this week with a bit of a pickup in sanctions news. Also, a couple of fraud reports out this week, and the Wolfsburg Group has published an update to its anti bribery and corruption guidance. There's a bit on money laundering and market abuse, and we end with the usual review of this week's cyber attack news. As usual, all the links to the principal documents mentioned in the podcast can be found in the description, and frankly, there's an awful lot of them. We'll start with sanctions this week. I said a while ago now that once the nations imposing sanctions began to see fewer and fewer things to sanction, the balance of sanctions work would shift to enforcement and we'd start to see an increase in sanctions enforcement. Well, this week we start in the US where... The sanctions enforcement action has been taken against John Khan Unsalan, who also goes by the name as Huram Khan Unsalan, for allegedly engaging in a three-year scheme to violate U.S. sanctions against oligarch Sergei Kachenko and two of Kachenko's companies by providing those sanctioned parties with over $150 million in return for steel-making materials. Kachenko has been under sanctioned by the U.S. since 2015 for his role in misappropriating state assets of Ukraine or of an economically significant entity in Ukraine. So while this is sort of legacy news respecting Russia-Ukraine relations, it nevertheless highlights the importance now placed on enforcement. For what it's worth, Kachenko has been under sanction by the U.K. since 2022. The link to the U.S. Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. We'll stick with the US for the next round of sanctions stories first. The US Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, has made seven designations of one individual and six entities for sanctions evasion, principally in facilitating the acquisition of electronic components for its military programs, including those used in the manufacture of unmanned aerial vehicles, which have been used by Russia against Ukraine. To such devastating effect. The second story is the sanctioning of three judicial officials in Nicaragua for human rights abuses. Now, the final story is a massive one in terms of the reach of its designation. OFAC has sanctioned a money laundering and sanctions evasion network which supports Hezbollah financier Nazem Said Ahmed. The designation covers 52 individuals and entities in Lebanon, the United Arab Emirates, South Africa, Angola, Côte d'Ivoire, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Belgium, the United Kingdom and Hong Kong. This network facilitated the payment, shipment and delivery of cash, diamonds, precious gems, art and luxury goods. Links to all three stories with the press releases from the US Department of the Treasury can be found in the podcast description. In the UK, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has announced the addition of Nazim Ahmed to the consolidated list under the counter-terrorism domestic regime. Ahmed, who will be subject to an asset freeze, finds himself as the first target of the Treasury-led domestic counter-terrorism regime. 
links to the notice, updated guidance, the updated list of asset freeze targets and the regulations which provided the power to freeze Ahmed's assets can be found in the podcast description. Offsea has also issued a license allowing Russian railways to make and Lithuanian railways to receive payments for relevant passenger rail travel. Link to the license in the podcast description. The final Offsea story this week is news of the publication of guidance on financial sanctions implementation for high-value dealers, luxury goods markets and art market participants. The link is in the podcast description. And finally, on official sanctions amendments this week, on Friday the 21st of April, the government introduced new legislation on the Russian sanctions regime to prohibit the export, supply and delivery and making available to or for the use in Russia of a range of goods, as well as the provision of related ancillary services. Link to the regulations and a cracking summary on the website of international law firm Field Fisher and a summary or notice of the sanctions introduced against Russia published by the Department for Trade can be found in the podcast description. It also, I suppose I should add, made three additions to the Russia regime and two additions to the global human rights regime, both of which can be seen in the podcast description. Lot on that. Do apologise. I didn't make the announcements. They did. Away from official announcements, but sticking with the United Kingdom... The Solicitors Regulation Authority in England and Wales has announced that it will require all firms not currently doing so to conduct a short assessment into how they believe they're in compliance with the United Kingdom's financial sanctions regime. The window of opportunity to provide this information is the 2nd to the 31st of May. Link is in the podcast description. Now... To the European Union, and you may remember how last week we noted that noise was coming from Brussels about a further round of sanctions against Russia, the 11th round. Well, this week member states have started to pitch in with ideas, notably Germany, which has suggested that civilian nuclear industry should be subject to sanctions. The bloc continues to import significantly from the Russian nuclear energy supply, and while it suggested that an inclusion in sanctions could be on the cards... I can't see Hungary going for it. The other sanctions news from the European Union is that by a number of news agencies, names are also being suggested for addition to the new sanctions list. Lots of speculation, nothing certain. I think I'd rather wait. Final sanctions story this week comes from Ukraine, where President Zelensky has signed two decrees this week which approve the imposition of sanctions on almost 700 individuals and legal entities. The link is in the podcast description, and you can translate it to English if your Ukraine isn't up to it, just like mine. That's it for sanctions this week. Let's move on to fraud. And crikey, it's been a belter of a week for fraud. Mm, now, where do we start? Well, we start with a small story from the European Union, where the Union Anti-Fraud Programme, the EUAF, has issued a call for proposals for EU action grants in the field of the fight against fraud under the programme. Call for proposals and links to the funding and tenders portal and online manual can be found in the podcast description. Other more interesting news comes from the Banking and Finance Industry Trade Body, UK Finance, which has highlighted losses caused by impersonation scams. It highlights that such scams which involve the perpetrator pretending to be a bank, a utility company or a government agency, such as 
His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, generated losses of £177.6 million last year in 45,367 cases. Alongside the data was some research which identified that just over half always check the veracity of the request, while around a fifth of those subject to the survey identifying themselves as receiving contact from some agency which they believed to be fraudulent. The research regarded this as alarming, but I wouldn't go that far. I think these things are a fact of life now, whether by email, text or phone call. The research identified as especially vulnerable being those who would be classed as young adults, that is, those aged 18 to 34, with this group being less likely to check the veracity of the request. I've said it before and I'll say it again, while these contacts should always be regarded with suspicion, since that is a robust form of protection, the best form of protection is education. The scale of the problem and the absence of meaningful and comprehensive education in the skills needed to assess the quality of a contact of the forms identified is the biggest problem and a borderline scandal that it does not appear with sufficient urgency from policymakers. Anyway, the link to that story is in the podcast description. An interesting addendum to it is news reported this week that 75% of e-commerce phishing attacks exploit the Apple and Amazon brands to facilitate their criminality. Targeting such brands, especially Apple, which is responsible for 60% of that, might at least explain, in part, the susceptibility of the younger generation to such exploitation. An interesting link to both of these stories comes also from another report this week published by Feedseye, entitled The Human Impact of Fraud and Financial Crime on Customer Trust in Banks. In a survey of 4,000 bank customers, the report highlights that fraudsters are taking advantage of the widening fraud knowledge gap between victims and perpetrators of fraud. And while romance scams remain the most reported form of scam, fraudsters are adapting. This constant evolution of the fraudster responding to human vulnerabilities and the response of gatekeepers to vulnerabilities is a fact of life and demonstrated no more compellingly than by the COVID-19 pandemic and the scale of fraud in various schemes which responded to the pandemic. While it's useful to have in black and white, once again, the issue of fraud as a reminder to all, it is worrying that the adaptability of fraudsters is not necessarily being met by agility among policymakers. Interestingly, the report raises the use of unwitting individuals as money mules. I trawled through the back catalogue of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast and the issue of unaware money mules, for want of a better expression, and their increasing use, particularly during the ongoing cost of living crisis, is something which we've discussed in episodes 19, 23 and 27 of the podcast. But the message clearly isn't getting through. This is a concern. As ever, it seems to be that it's a lack of education which is causing some to think that there's nothing wrong with allowing their bank account to be used as the resting place for funds. Link to the report, which has to be downloaded by adding your details to a form, is in the podcast description. Now, let's bring to a close this week's fraud stories. We've three broadly 
allied stories, but from across the globe. First, to the United States, where the Department of Justice, which has announced criminal charges against 18 defendants in nine federal districts districts across the United States for their alleged participation in various fraud schemes involving healthcare services that exploited the COVID-19 pandemic and allegedly resulted in over $490 million in COVID-19-related false billings to federal programs and theft from federally funded pandemic programs. The link is in the podcast description. Secondly and thirdly to the UK, where, first of all, Sir David Green, the former head of the Serious Fraud Office, has criticised the British government for ignoring red flags in the distribution of taxpayer-funded emergency loans to businesses during the pandemic. This is something which has been addressed by the National Audit Office and which was the subject of our Financial Crime Weekly Special Edition this week. While speed might have been needed, safeguards could have been observed and that was identified by that National Audit Office report. Now, very much linked to this is the third story, which is the announcement by the Insolvency Service in the United Kingdom of the summary of its disqualification activity for 2022-2023. It reported that it disqualified 459 directors in 2022-2023 for abuse of pandemic support schemes. Now, any regular listener to the Financial Crime Weekly podcast will not be surprised about this figure since we report regularly on enforcement action taken against directors for abuse of the COVID-19 support schemes in the UK. It provides that the average length of a disqualification is seven years and four months. Link to the press release and the Insolvency Service Enforcement Outcomes for 22-23 can be found in the podcast description. Now that's it for fraud. I told you there was a lot. Now we move on to bribery and corruption. And the big news this week is that the Wolfsburg Group has published its anti-bribery or updated anti-bribery and corruption compliance program guidance, updating the earlier 2017 version. As the press release provides, and this is quite a lengthy quote, but it was better in their words than mine, The guidance is a risk-based approach for the adequate development and implementation of compliance programs to prevent, detect and report acts of bribery and corruption and identifies areas of elevated risk. While no ABC, that's anti-bribery and corruption, compliance program can prevent or protect against bribery and corruption risks completely and there is no one-size-fits-all solution, this guidance can help the industry mitigate bribery and corruption risks by using elements, including but not limited to an applicable firm-wide ABC policy, governance with roles and responsibilities and access to top management, periodic risk assessment to assess the nature and extent of the bribery and corruption risks, the establishment of a controls environment covering risks associated with anything of value, third-party providers and customer-related transaction risks, investment and acquisitions. Training and awareness, including the sharing of lessons learned from internal and external events for continuous evaluation of the compliance program adequacy. And finally, monitoring and testing for compliance with controls to identify failure to act in a manner consistent with the financial institution's business principles, policies, codes of conduct 
applicable laws or regulation. The guidance, that is the updated guidance, incorporates learnings from enforcement actions since 2017 with updates to the red flag section and expands the section on customer and transaction corruption risks. The document includes the need for financial institutions programs to be continuously evolving and a new section on identifying, reporting and mitigating emerging bribery and corruption risks. Finally, the guidance has been aligned to current and evolving legal regulatory expectations with additional guidance for post-acquisition due diligence. The inclusion of guidance for financial institutions to include analytic risk assessment and management as part of their control frameworks. Yeah, that was a bit exhausting. Link to the press release, the full guidance and the executive summary can be found in the podcast description. The rest of the bribery and corruption news this week comes principally from the US, though there is a bit from the EU. So we start with that with the US and it's news that the uh, well, there are quite a few bits of news, actually. First, a Brooklyn federal correctional officer has been charged with bribery for its alleged taking unauthorized payments for struggling, struggling, smuggling contraband into prisons. Not the first one to have done this. Two other stories relate to corruption arising from contracts for public officers with one guilty plea and the other receiving a 78-month prison term and a restitution order of $1 million. The final story is news that the former national treasurer of Venezuela and her husband have been sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for their roles in bribery and money laundering schemes. Links to all stories can be found in the podcast description. Now to the European Union, and then we'll finish with a story from Japan. In the European Union, and it's particularly the Parliament now, which has adopted stronger measures on transparency and accountability in light of the Qatar corruption scandal, which has engulfed the institution in recent months. The Bureau's decision on Monday this week revises rules which have been in place since 1999 and which propose new restrictions on activities. The press release, which you can find in the podcast description, provides as follows. Following the endorsement by Parliament's group leaders of the reform plan proposed by President Metzola, the Bureau adopted first implementing decision revising the rules for former members of the European Parliament and held a first discussion on revised rules on access to Parliament's premises. It introduces, among other things, a cooling-off period for former members of the European Parliament of six months following the end of their mandate. During that period, former members shall not engage in lobbying or representational activities with the European Parliament. After this period, if former members decide to engage in lobbying or representational activities within the European Parliament, they will have to register in the Transparency Register. Consequently, they will not be entitled to access rights and facilities provided to them as former members. And we end this week's bribery and corruption stories with news of the first verdicts in the Tokyo Olympic Games bribery scandal. The founder of Aoki Aoki Holdings, which paid bribes, and its former chairman and two others were found guilty but avoided jail time by the court handing down suspended sentences. Now to money laundering. 
Not been a lot on money laundering this week. Nice and quiet. It's no bad thing. First piece of money laundering news comes courtesy of the European Union with the release of a report from the European Parliament on the prevention of the use of the financial system for the purposes of money laundering or terrorist financing. The report proposes amendments to MLD 6, that's Money Laundering Directive 6. Hot on the heels of this was an announcement that members of the European Parliament are to open talks with the Council of the European Union on reforming anti-money laundering rules to help authorities crack down on the illicit flow of money and assets. Links to both can be found in the podcast description. A further piece of money laundering, which I suppose links to the EU, but it's an EU member state, namely Estonia, which has charged six ex-Dansk Bank branch staff with money laundering in relation to the Estonian office of that bank. In the UK, the National Crime Agency has published its SARS in Action magazine. It has the usual mix of stories, reflecting on its new SARS portal, the trade in illegal wildlife, cryptocurrencies and SARS, and a strategic and statistical analysis of SARS submitted in order to draw out themes. The art market is the subject of the latest thematic review. The link to the magazine can be found in the podcast description. In the US, the Department of the Treasury has released remarks by Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crime Elizabeth Rosenberg on decentralised finance risk assessments at the Atlantic Council. You'll remember there was a report published in the US last week on this. The link to that can be found in last week's podcast and the link to the comments of Elizabeth Rosenberg can be found in the podcast description. Now, a little bit on market abuse before we have a trawl through the cyber news this week. So we start in the US on market abuse news with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has announced that Bittrex Inc., the crypto asset trading platform, along with its former CEO, William Shahara, for operating an unregistered national securities exchange, brokerage and clearing agency. Charged alongside was its affiliate, Bittrex Global GmbH, with failing to register as a national securities exchange. The link to that is in the podcast description. The other major news on market abuse comes from the European Union, where this week the European Parliament has approved the markets in crypto assets. Now, this is a regulation which establishes harmonised rules for crypto assets across the bloc. This news follows the publication of remarks by European Commissioner Mairead McGuinness at the European Parliament plenary joint debate on crypto assets, stating that, quote, MICA will bring crypto assets into the regulated space by addressing risks related to consumer protection, market integrity and financial stability, and that it will introduce rules to prevent market abuse of crypto markets, such as market manipulation. Links to the remarks by McGuinness and the information on MICA can be found in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by turning our attention to cyber news. We have a roundup of a good range of news this week. As ever, there's loads of it about. In fact, I have to start trimming it because there's so much of it. Anyway, we'll start with the continuing impact of cyber attacks which have arisen in recent weeks. We've reported previously on the Latitude cyber attack in Australia. Latitude is a financial services provider where the impact ripples 
are being felt now by anyone who apparently applied for a credit card at the store Coles over the last five years. Those people may have had their personal details taken. To be frank, I'd expect more on this since the layers are being removed from week to week on that latitude cyber attack. On more legacy cyber attack news this week, this time we'll move to the UK, where the Criminal Records Service, which suffered a cyber attack on or around the 21st of March, remains impacted by that attack. The next one in the UK is Capita PLC, which did they, didn't they suffer a cyber attack? You may remember we had a look at that. Well, it turns out they did suffer a cyber attack. Well, in that cyber attack, the reality of it is now being felt and the extent of it is now being seen, where a wealth of personal information has apparently been taken, including telephone numbers, bank account details, and the home addresses of certain individuals. It's certainly worse than was originally reported. The Guardian said that the attack was not interrupted by Capita for around nine days after the likely breach. Now we turn to fresh cyber attack news first. A couple of charities have been subject of cyber attacks in the UK. In Northern Ireland, an IT company which manages data for around 140 organisations has suffered a cyber attack. One especially worrying aspect of this attack is that a number of the organisations support victims of sexual abuse. The Data Protection Commission and the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK have been notified of the breach. Sticking with the UK, a cyber attack has been reported by a school in Plymouth in the United Kingdom where students received emails telling them they'd been expelled. No other impact on, of that cyber attack has been reported. Of more concern is the next story from the UK where it's been variously reported this week that firms have been advised to strengthen their cyber defences after concern about threats from Russian-related cyber terrorists, with threats particularly focused on infrastructure. We've seen how attacks on infrastructure have been stepping up in recent weeks. They've been rising and we've looked at them in previous editions. The thing which worries me is that they're only being asked to act now. This warning should have come months ago. Months ago. And finally, on newly announced cyber attacks this week, Montana State University has been the subject of a cyber attack. The university closed down its systems once it identified the attack and no further information is available at this stage. To be frank, it's all a bit disappointing and depressing, but there is some positive news out there. There's a little bit of positive news out there. First, South Korea is reported to have deflected a cyber attack from the Lazarus Group, which targeted 61 South Korean institutions. Secondly, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has hosted a cyber attack simulation for global finance firms simulating a payment system outage. Now, I think it's a source of reassurance that organisations do take part in these events and that, more compellingly, that they're being offered at the highest level, suggesting the genuine level of seriousness with which global bodies take these threats. The third one is the European Commission, which has adopted a proposal for the EU Cyber Solidarity Act to strengthen cybersecurity capabilities or capacities in the European Union. 
Good quote here from the press release. It will support detection and awareness of cybersecurity threats and incidents, bolster preparedness of critical entities, as well as reinforce solidarity, concerted crisis management and response capabilities across member states. The Cyber Solidarity Act establishes EU capabilities to make Europe more resilient and reactive in front of cyber threats, while strengthening existing cooperation mechanisms. It will contribute to ensuring a safe and secure digital landscape for citizens and businesses and to protecting critical entities and essential services such as hospitals and public utilities. The full press release is in the podcast description. Now, in news of the scale of the problem of cyber attacks, as if we didn't already appreciate it, data from the polling company Ipsos Mori, which has been collected on behalf of the British government, has identified that a third of businesses and a quarter of charities have been subject to cyber attacks in the last year. While this is overall a slight drop on previous years, what has increased is the number of attacks on medium and large-scale businesses and charities with turnover of more than half a million pounds per year. This suggested scale of the problem might well explain the findings of a publication this week from the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, the IAIS, whose Global Insurance Market Report Special Edition topic on cyber has identified that despite tighter terms and conditions, and we've seen this recently, premiums have continued to grow. While in addition to that, supervisors are actively developing and implementing macro-prudential supervision frameworks for cyber risks. Linked to the report and other relevant materials from the IAIS can be found in the podcast description. One point, again, which comes out of that IAIS and the role of supervisory frameworks and so on, and that is the development of a new framework to strengthen financial institutions' resilience to cyber attacks. And this announcement comes from the Canadian Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, or OSFI. It's released a framework to help identify areas where the financial sector could be vulnerable to sophisticated cyber attack. The link to that announcement, which contains links to all the relevant frameworks, can be found in the podcast description. Well, that is it for this week's exhaustingly long edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll hear from me, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.